Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I'm Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Special edition of Fearless with Jason Whitlock today. Uh, we hope that you're enjoying our holiday break and your holiday break. Uh, but we got to keep pumping out this great content. And man, am I excited about today's show and today's guest, Liz Collins. She's put out a documentary, uh, The Fall of Minneapolis, that you guys heard me talking about a few weeks ago. I want to play you uh, the trailer for The Fall of Minneapolis. It's about the George Floyd hoax, tragedy, whatever. And uh, we'll play the trailer and then we'll bring uh, Liz on and we'll get into this discussion. George Floyd. Murder. Murder and manslaughter. The murder of George Floyd. Peaceful protest overnight in the Twin Cities. They've been very peaceful. The crowd continues to be peaceful. 846, 8 minutes and 46 seconds. 9 minutes and 29 seconds. Actually, 8 minutes and 46 seconds. By the way, that particular technique is not authorized by the NMPD. Is this a trained Minneapolis Police Department technique? It is not. When I heard that, I really wanted to get up off my chair and yell, bullshit. From what I've seen of the videotape, the photograph, and the police training manual, they look pretty identical. Were you trained in MRT, the maximal restraint technique? Yes. 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 Yes, all the police officers were trained in the MRT. George Floyd says, I got shot last time. I got shot the same way as officers before. Did you shoot him? No, I didn't shoot him, no. You helped to train Officer Alex King. What did you think of him? I probably trained a few thousand people. He was probably one of the top two. This call is from a federal prison. Hi, Derek, it's Liz. All right, so you guys, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I talked about uh, this documentary, The Fall of Minneapolis. I connected it to a previous documentary about Trayvon Martin and all of these race crime hoaxes to drive a political narrative. Uh, Liz, I, I wanna welcome you to the show and I wanna thank you uh, for taking the time. And, and you've put together a marvelous, a powerful documentary. It, it totally contradicts uh, the narrative uh, that corporate media promoted for several years uh, about uh, Derek Chauvin and George Floyd. What has been uh, the reaction uh, so far uh, in Minneapolis, to the political figures and the media there in Minneapolis to your documentary. Well, first, I just want to thank you so much for having me on, Jason. And you were very early uh, on to endorse endorse this uh, film, so we appreciate that uh, so much here here at Alpha News. But it's been viewed uh, millions of times all around the world, which is remarkable. Uh, people still seem to believe in the truth, so there there is hope. 
here. Um, I'll say the reaction um, has obviously surpassed any expectation we had. We wanted to just offer this for free to, to get as many people as possible to watch. I know it won't surprise you, but completely ignored uh, by the mainstream media, uh, you know, here in the Twin Cities and uh, really a across the country, uh, of course. Um, and, and political figures, I think, to this day are still uh, quite, quite quiet uh, when it comes to this case. But that was really the, the point of all of this. You decide. Here are all the facts. Here are all the things that were that were kept from you. Uh, ask yourself why that is. Uh, you go ahead and, and make your mind up uh, yourself. And also, you know, just to point to all the, the consequences of all of this that we're still living uh, to this day because of these lies. The Minneapolis Star Tribune, have they not done a story on you in this documentary? Uh, you know, they briefly mentioned uh, the documentary, uh, sadly, after Derek Chauvin was stabbed uh, just eight days after this documentary came out in, in Tucson, Arizona, where he's been for the last 15 months. But the Star Tribune uh, mentioned the documentary, just the timing of it and his stabbing, uh, basically just to say that the film attempted uh, to garner sympathy uh, for the four officers involved. And beyond uh, that sentence, there really wasn't much of anything else. So, Liz, it's my understanding you were involved in the mainstream media for many years before transitioning to an independent journalist. How shocked are you that they can ignore, and again, they don't even have to endorse it. They could cover it and criticize you and uh, criticize the documentary, but to ignore it and dismiss it, that's, you know, that's really shocking to me. You've worked with these guys in Minneapolis. Are you shocked by this? Nothing seems to shock me anymore, Jason, I'll, I'll be honest. But I think that that's where we are uh, in this country, sadly. Um, I, I was, you're right, I was a member of the mainstream media for 20 years uh, in total, 15 years nearly at this uh, CBS station where I worked, WCCO, uh, but before leaving. And I left over all of this because uh, there was so much information that the media could have been passing on to the public when it came to this case several stories but before this as well. I kind of saw the writing on the wall in mainstream media. But, but I was really just uh, sickened. Uh, not so much what we were telling the public on a nightly basis, but what we were not. And I, and I do think that, that this information, the truth in all of this, would have made a difference very early on. Instead, you had our politicians fanning the flames. You had journalists turn into activists. There was no pushing back on any of the things uh, that they were saying. Uh, I, was, I was saying they're lying over and over again uh, about all of this. I was connected. Uh, my husband was the union president at the time of the Minneapolis Police Department, so I had a, a view that way. Um, but but I put out a book uh, called They're Lying, The Media, the Left, and the Death of George Floyd, and that was last October, um, and, and tried, you know, again, the mainstream media completely ignored th that and whatnot. So then we put this documentary out um, after more people were, were willing to come forward and sort of tell their stories uh, for the first the first time. But but yeah, I think that this is what we see again and again from mainstream media that that they ignore, just hoping we will uh, go away uh, in a way. And and nobody to to this day, you know, it's just been a, been a couple weeks now, but ha have challenged the facts of of this uh Instead, it's name calling, you know, the things we, we expect at, at this point, but, but nobody is challenging the facts, and that's, that says a lot. One of the criticisms I've heard uh, is that, you know, your husband was a member of the Minneapolis Police Department. How, how do you answer that charge? Does that, make, does that make you biased and someone who should not be trusted on this topic? <laughs> 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's also a sad state of affairs in this country when you lose your position. I mean, don't I was actually knocked off the anchor desk uh, for being married to a police officer. That's uh, as, as crazy as that that sounds. Uh, but I, I admit fully that I had a very unique perspective in, in all of this um, and obviously have a connection uh, to law enforcement. But, but here's the thing. I never set out to write a book about this, to put out a documentary. I was waiting for somebody else uh, to actually step in and set the record straight here. Uh, but it was sort of a, a calling kind of on my heart that this is what I'm supposed to supposed to be doing um, because so many lives were, were turned upside down and, and simply did not have to be, um, you know, d due to uh, the, the lies that that were peddled. So that's kind of how I re respond uh, to that. Frankly, I feel very lucky to be a member of uh, the law enforcement uh, family, and, and I feel blessed to kind of give them a voice in all of this because it's been taken away from them for so long. Well, there were several pivotal moments, and I'm not going to start with my, the, the, the number one thing that made my mouth drop to the floor. I'm not going to start there. I'm going to start with what I think most people's takeaway would be as the most pivotal deal is that your documentary makes the case pretty strongly that Derek Chauvin followed the procedures that the Minneapolis Police Department taught him the manual restraint or maximal restraint technique or whatever. You showed pictures. You had half dozen other law enforcement members say, I was trained in that. You showed that the chief was lying. And then I think it was a woman, maybe an inspector. She was lying, acting like we never t taught this. Is that the pivotal part of your documentary in your view? Yeah, and I, I talk more about this in, in the book as well. This is the very first day um, after the incident involving George Floyd on May 25th of 2020 in Minneapolis that you have the chief and the mayor uh, sort of proudly declare to the media uh, that whatever is transpiring um, out there at that intersection, they have no idea. Uh, this is not how we train. This is not a part of training. And I go at that time, uh, still a reporter in mainstream media, uh, to the website that, that contains the uh, Minneapolis Police Department manual. It's an online document, which I've referred to before. And there are two pages that are mysteriously gone from that, that document. And this is when I start saying, well, they're lying. We need to push back. These two pages are gone. Uh, that references the MRT, the maximal restraint technique, which the officers are referencing in the body camera footage. Uh, but again, the body camera footage is withheld from the public for, for so long. And that's why we use it in, in the film, because for many, it's the very first time they've ever seen any of it. And, uh, you know, again, people should should wonder why. But but you're right. I think that is really a critical uh, point in all of this. You have the, the chief say that. You have uh, the inspector, uh, Katie Blackwell, who was the head of training at the time, say that. And uh, also, you know, Katie Blackwell was promoted. She's the assistant police chief now in Minneapolis. And it doesn't seem to be that there were, um, you know, there was any pushback against these people under oath saying it wasn't a part of training, even though every officer I talked to, more than a dozen for the film, uh, you know, point to their training as far back as 1993 that contained uh, the maximal restraint technique in their policy. And so I know for people that have swallowed the George Floyd, the St. George Floyd narrative, this is what irritates them about me. I, I, <laughs> there's the other part of the document, and still not the most compelling part for me, but this is another thing that, that got me was that Derek Chauvin, I know you're not supposed to express any sympathy for Derek Chauvin, but Derek Chauvin shows up 
on the scene. George Floyd's been a headache for 15, 20 minutes with these other officers when Derek Chauvin shows up. And uh, they, 36 seconds after taking George Floyd to the ground, they call for paramedics. And, and so I can imagine if I'm Derek Chauvin and you've been on the, on the police force for 10, 15 years or however long Derek Chauvin has, he's like, well, paramedics will be here in 90 seconds, two minutes tops. They're just around the corner. And so when he does the MRT move, he's thinking, well, this is going to last 90 seconds, two minutes tops because the paramedics will be here and then they're gonna take over and it'll be just like a year ago when George Floyd got arrested by the other officer uh, <laughs> that you did. And, and so there's all this chaos going on. And I, in my view, Derek Chauvin likely lost track of time. He's being yelled and screamed at. There's all this, his expectations were, well, this is gonna be 90 seconds, two minutes. And he had no idea in the chaos of like, this was eight minutes? And, and I know people don't wanna hear that, but when I watch the documentary and, and when I see the mistakes that the paramedics made and, and how, how I, Derek Chauvin, I think, says it took him 20 minutes to get there because they went someplace else, I thought that was very compelling and really speaks to like, uh, nah, Derek Chauvin had no malicious intent here. Uh, accidents just happen and mistakes happen and this got way out of hand. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the, the point here, too. There was so much more to this story um, that they could have been honest about. You speak to this fire rig, uh, which uh, contains uh, some some EMS members, but basically they they arrive uh, 20 minutes later that the paramedics are there uh, about eight or nine minutes. But you're right. They should have been there in, in two or three minutes. You even have a, a firefighter who takes the stand uh, who's there shouting obscenities uh, at, at the officers that day who admits to to that exact point. And you talk about, um, you know, George Floyd's behavior, which I think there is so much to be said about this, um, about the lies that basically start with, with George Floyd uh, himself, tragically. When the officers are recognizing, again, you have Alex King, who's been on the job for three days off of field training, and you have uh, Thomas Lane. These are the two officers that arrive and interact with him for nearly 13 minutes before Derek Chauvin arrives on scene. Uh, but they're saying, what are you on, man? You know, you know what's going on? And, and George Floyd denies again and again being on anything. And you have hit, you have George Floyd refusing to get in the squad car. Uh, he himself is the one that asks to be laid on the ground. Uh, he says he's claustrophobic, despite the fact that officers just pull him out of a cramped squad car, uh, you know, to, to be taken into custody. And again, you have this very dangerous no, no, no. narrative. Hold, hold, of, let me correct you. Let me let me correct you yeah. one thing. You, you said squad car. He got taken out of his own cramped car. His own George Floyd's cramped car. car. Yeah, to be put yeah, into a squad yeah. car. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So yes. There, there's just so much to be to be said about what what takes place uh, before Derek Chauvin arrives on scene, you know, again, complaining that he can't breathe uh, before Derek, Derek Chauvin is even there. So the most powerful thing to me that made my mouth just drop to the floor and I actually rewound it and was like, come on, did she really say that? And did this guy really say this? The minister at the George Floyd funeral opening <laughs> that ceremony with a shout out to the, I believe, Bloods 
or Crips won, vice lords and gangster disciples. That just blew my mind. It, and so is there any context around that? Did I hear that's how they opened the funeral service? Is there is the church filled with gang members? Did they get need permission from gang members to hold the service? Is there any context that could help me understand how that happened? Yeah, I think uh, we have a lot more about that in the book as well. Just the history of of Minneapolis and, you know, the attorney general of Minnesota, uh, Keith Ellison, who had a long history himself of representing uh, gang members. You know, again, he's the top law enforcement officer in Minnesota at this point, uh, Keith Ellison. But nobody in the media wanted to talk about Keith Ellison's uh, background. And and again, I'm watching the the funeral service as I'm monitoring all of this uh, as a reporter. And I'm I'm saying, are we going to point this out to people that this is a this is how the funeral started but of course you know everybody's afraid at that point to, to speak the truth about this that was pretty pretty early on um, but there is a relationship b- b- between uh, Keith Ellison and and that pastor who who led uh, the, the service that that is quite telling uh, that we we detail a, a bit in the film but but more so in in the book but but yes absolutely that 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 happened and and nobody seemed to call attention to it at the time well Give us some of that detail of the relationship Keith Ellison and his connections to the gangs there. I, I've, this is the attorney general for the state of Minnesota who has clear gang ties from his history as a defense attorney, I, I, I guess. Right, uh, which dates back uh, decades. In fact, uh, he was involved with the execution, uh, representing someone who was involved, I should say, with the execution of a Minneapolis uh, police officer. Jerry Hoff was his name. Uh, he was having coffee on a on a break one day uh, during his shift as a, a Minneapolis cop, and he was executed by a, a gang member. And, and Keith Ellison represented someone who was involved uh, with plotting uh, the death of this officer uh, in, in that coffee shop, a very well-documented case in, in Minneapolis history. Uh, he has a long history of hating the police. These are things that he's said in public during press conferences. Uh, so ultimately, this is no surprise as far as uh, how he takes over this case. Uh, but the press wasn't really willing to, to go there, uh, of course. But ultimately, he puts four police officers behind bars for this incident. Also, Kim Potter, who was involved with another incident uh, during during all of this and the death of, of Dante Wright. So five you know, police officers in Minnesota in prison as the attorney general of Minnesota. But but this is really no surprise if you look into his background, uh, which it seemed the media was really afraid afraid to do. Um, and, and again, you have um, Hennepin County prosecutors, I, I should say, Jason, that did not want to charge. They didn't feel comfortable with charging the three officers in this case involving George Floyd at all. They withdrew from the case uh, due to ethical and, and moral uh reasons, they say, in a, in a formal letter written to the Hennepin County attorney at the time, Mike Freeman. Uh, but then you have Keith Ellison swoop in with his dream team of attorneys. That's how he refers to them, the Michael Jordans of, of attorneys, he calls them in this case. And he takes over the prosecution and makes sure those three other officers are, are charged with aiding and abetting murder in the death of George Floyd. So, Last week I had Megan Kelly on and I asked her this question and and it's actually a better question for you given your connection to Minneapolis and just boots on the ground. Let's say you're Keith Ellison and 
whoever the goofy mayor is, I, I remember his <laughs> hairstyle more than I do his name. Uh, what about his dance moves? Chief. Do you remember those? Yeah, I do remember the dance moves, the okay. police chief, the jury, the judge. All of these people know, like, if we do the right thing, this city's probably going to burn an additional two, three, two to three weeks. It, it, there's going to be more riots, more destruction for two to three more weeks. And I can see politicians saying that, hey, the way the media is rigged, Minneapolis's reputation, through the, and it won't be fair, but the reputation will be, oh, this is the most racist city in America. And, and so if, do you have any sympathy at all for the position the leaders were in knowing the consequences if they did the right thing? You know, I, I would feel differently uh, at this point and, and would have sympathy if you didn't have them all doubling down on all of this. Nobody these days can admit they were wrong, that, that they got it wrong, um, and show any sort of empathy um, in, in all of this. To the, the police that were forced to leave their the profession. I mean, hundreds of, of officers. Um, so, so that's that's difficult uh, for me. I know they didn't have uh, they didn't have uh, you know some way to look into the future to see um, sadly what's become of Minneapolis as a result of of all of this. Um, but there are interesting backstories to all of these people that were making uh, dis decisions, basically outsiders to Minnesota. Uh, the the governor is. A Nebraska transplant sort of handpicked uh, here. And uh, you have the mayor, Jacob Fry, who was hand plucked from Virginia to come here and run for city council and then become mayor of Minneapolis. Uh, Keith Ellison, we've talked about his past. So really the perfect people in the perfect positions for this to, to play out in in this state. But also even after the, the stabbing of, of Derek Chauvin, there are there are so many uh, questions in, involving that because you have Keith Ellison again, the man who put Derek Chauvin behind bars in the first place, is the first one, um, the first Minnesota official to even be briefed on his condition at all, uh, and he was providing updates on how Derek Chauvin is doing after nearly being fatally stabbed. It, it sounds like at at this point, and nobody in the media is questioning. Well, wait a minute, uh, Derek Chauvin's own family knows nothing. Why does the why is the the guy who led the prosecution? Uh, against him being being called uh, by the by the FBI uh, with with information. So so again, I just think uh, you know there's some some troubling uh, details in in all of this. Is there any hope for Derek Chauvin? I know that the Supreme Court, I guess, turned down an appeal. Is there any hope for Derek Chauvin? Yeah. So we have the U.S. Supreme Court that that denied uh, denied the appeal recently uh, but there are a couple of things um, going on with new evidence uh, in in the case he has a, a new attorney Bill Mormon uh, who is featured in in the film the fall of Minneapolis as well who we talked to uh, and and there there's some new evidence with some depositions that were recently made public um, and where that information came from about the uh, the prosecutors uh, in Hennepin County not feeling comfortable uh, going ahead with with charges the other officers went ahead and, and pled guilty 
after seeing what happened in Derek Chauvin's trial, thinking there's no possible way they can get a fair trial in Hennepin County. Um, so they go ahead, you know, because they could have faced 10, 15 years in prison and they just decide to get back to their families as early as possible. They'll go ahead and plead, um, you know, to spend, you know, three to, to five years is what their sentence, sentences are. So this this new information that just came to light a couple months ago, the attorneys I know are, are looking at, uh, perhaps they would not have pled um, you know, had they known that so many people um, were against charging them in, in the first place? Well, you know, not that they'll be treated like the Central Park Five, but if you remember that case, those guys took plea agreements and ended up so-called getting exonerated. But I, I don't want to open that can because the, the whole exonerator five deals a lie as well. But th th there was one off, you talked to three of the off, you talked to Derek, I think you talked to Alex King, you talked to Thomas Lane, and is it Tu Tao? Is, did I get the name right of the yep. Asian officer? Yeah. He seems most fascinating to me because I, I, I watched his uh, comments uh, the day he was sentenced, and man, he went down like a soldier. I mean, I got so much respect for him. Uh, and, and he's the one guy that I don't think was in your documentary. Uh, do you, why, why weren't you able to reach him? And, and I, I, I mean, I feel bad for all these guys, but I love that guy. Uh, I mean, he read the Bible to the judge and stood his ground. I, I, I got so much res respect them all, but him the most, I guess. Did you try to reach out and get him involved? And I was surprised he wasn't involved. Yeah, I, I'm still uh, in touch with uh, his attorney and family, and they were on board with all of this. We didn't want to make the the documentary. You know, here are just the the four officers. There was a lot more um, to all of this. We wanted to bring out, so some of that was just about timing. The documentary could have been about six hours in in total. Um, and uh, you're right, though, about that sentencing. That really said a lot about uh, Judge Judge. Peter Cahill, uh, who presided over all of this. Um, that's why uh, Tu Tao ultimately is given nearly a five-year prison sentence because uh, he's reciting Bible verses uh, during his sentencing to the judge, even says that he'll pray for the judge and has been praying for the judge in this in this case. Uh, and the judge fires back and, and says he uh, is appalled, basically, that Tu Tao is showing no remorse uh, for what happened to George Floyd and gives him, ultimately, a longer sentence than than the two other officers that he sentenced as, as well. So I do know that he's been the, the subject of, of some things that have happened in, in prison, uh, Two uh, over the the last uh, couple years, and and again, let's not forget, uh, Derek Chauvin is partners with Tu Tao. Again, Chauvin, of course, made to be the most racist cop in America, um, and most of his partners over his 19-year uh, career were minority officers, um, and that became such a huge part of this narrative that the media and politicians wanted to push, and none of the facts supported any of this uh, in the end. I know I'm not on rock solid ground here, what I'm about to say, but it, it, I'm just telling you, this is the way I felt. I, I read somewhere, is it accurate that Derek, Derek Chauvin's 165 pounds? He's a very, yes, he's a very small, I, I think actually less than that, a very s small guy. Yeah, and so <laughs> this is, you watch the videos, you watch all the media coverage, and you kind of make up in your mind, like, oh, this is some six foot, six foot one, 220 pound officer, and he's got his knee on his neck. And it's like, no, nah, this is a tiny person. Uh, 
and again, you didn't even go into this, in, but you really did go into it because you talked about uh, what the autopsy revealed. There were no injuries here to George Floyd. This alleged knee on his neck caused no injuries. And, and I'm, you guys didn't make the argument, but I think part of the reason is like, this is a 165-pound guy or 150-pound guy. This isn't some giant guy on the back of a six foot four, 250 pound person. I, I just, I know I'm not supposed to have sympathy for uh, Derek Chauvin, but I'm sorry, I do. Uh, this is what a railroad case. And, and I'm embarrassed. You're, you're, are you despised by your former peers in the media? <laughs> Do you have any relationship with anybody you used to work with in the media? I, I do. Uh, those relationships are, you know, now behind closed doors because it's not good, not good for their reputations, of, of course. Uh, but it certainly has severed people that, that I thought uh, were my friends and um, believed in the same things I did as a journalist. But it is sad, you know, that in corporate America, people have to worry about their, their health insurance or put their kids through college, um, you know, and go ahead and sacrifice their, their morals in the process. Uh, but the, I guess that that's where we are. I always get that question, though, about how how I'm sort of treated, but mostly mostly you know I'm just uh, ignored. They hope that I'll go away, which isn't going to happen because there's endless material here in Minnesota, probably as you know, uh, Jason, to to report on that. Simply the the mainstream media does a very bad job uh, in doing. So it's good uh, job security for what we do here at Alpha News. <laughs> and so one of the, you know I asked you the question earlier about the consequences and can you understand why people were reluctant thinking, oh man, you know, I could get killed, the city could burn. But, but there are the long-term consequences that your film argues pretty powerfully, like this city has lost control, there is no law and order, there are, there, we've shrunk the police department by about 30%, criminals are in charge of the streets, this shrine and this whole area they've built to George Floyd is probably one of the most unsafe places on the planet. Could you talk about just the consequences, the long-term consequences of, of what has gone on in Minneapolis? And that's why I think they made a tragic, they should have stood their ground and did the right thing, dealt with the short-term consequences because the long-term consequences of what they did are far worse. Oh, absolutely. Well, well said for sure as to everything that that's transpired. You know, putting putting the book out, you know, so long before uh, the movie, I thought things would maybe perhaps get a little bit better, but it really just continues to get worse. Uh, and you know, that's why we call the the last part here the right side of history. This is the mantra uh, that you have uh, politicians and the, the former police chief, et cetera. They're all saying we're going to live on the right side of history uh, after all of this. That was kind of peddled again and again uh, by, by all of them, and I've yet to run into a person to honestly say that that we, in fact, are. Uh, you have things like carjackings. They were never tracked in Minneapolis before. Hundreds of those happening in the city uh, every year. Uh, the, the highest three years uh, ever on record in Minneapolis as far as homicides uh, happened uh, in the wake of all of this, nearly double uh, what a typical year would would bring. Um, you know, again, crimes that just never even really happened. It was a very safe city in, in Minneapolis in, in the Midwest. Uh, I lived in the city for a dozen years and, and always felt 
uh, very safe. I was thankful to get out into the, the suburbs uh, b before all, all of this. Uh, but you have people fleeing the, the city. You have businesses. I think just last year alone, about 1,100 businesses left left the city of Minneapolis. That was documented. Uh, downtown is you know basically non-existent in, in the city anymore. Uh, you have you know, outside a Twins game that happened kind of recently, somebody shot and killed on the light rail platform in the middle of the day. Again, just horrific things uh, that have that have taken place. And I, and I really think that if they exactly like you said, would have been honest about all of this, none of this had to happen. There are so many victims uh, in all of this these these last three years. But you also have a mayor who's doubled down. You have a new police chief uh, in charge of Minneapolis that, that has doubled down, who made a very big uh, public uh, press conference of destroying Derek Chauvin's badge and, um, you know, talking about what a disgusting uh, cop he was. But just to talk a little bit more about Derek Chauvin, I mean, this is a guy who'd been on the, the job for 19 years. He had about 18 complaints, which really isn't much. He never even needed union representation. My husband barely knew the guy, um, you know, because the, his job was sort of to represent the people that, that needed representation. But Derek never had had that. He was a very quiet quiet cop, but what he was built into is is really just the power of the media. It's a remarkable, uh, remarkable thing that they can turn uh, people into monsters, uh, as you know, overnight. Liz, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to make a comment here that's going to assume uh, you're, you must be a believer because only believers have the kind of courage you're showing here. Uh, by doing this. And so the only thing I would ask you to do, because that was the only, I think it, it, at some point in the documentary, it said something about the right side of history. And I'm trying to, to make sure believers know that this whole, the left <coughs> loves to have that argument about being on the right side of history. And that's because they always plan on writing history. And <laughs> that, that's something they can control. And so the standard is, I want to be on the right side of God at all times. And so that's how I like to argue. Am I on the right side of God? And, and that's standing on truth. No matter how uncomfortable truth is, that's where God wants you standing. And there were truths about George Floyd that we could all see in real time. They want, and, and Liz, you don't have any reason to know this, but I, have a, I had a cousin that I helped raise that I helped raise. He was killed by police in Indiana, by sheriffs in Indianapolis in 2012. I'm not unsympathetic to uh, the whole police brutality issue, but because of what's happened in my family, Anton Butler, I paid for the funeral, I helped raise him, I loved the kid. I just understand how complicated these issues are. And I have to come at, no matter how much I loved Anton, I have to come at it from a realistic perspective about some of his decision-making, and even though I, I think the sheriffs were wrong. Uh, but these issues are very complicated. We must have the courage to stand on truth. That's how you stand with God. Thank you so much for being courageous. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to pray for you, Minneapolis and Derek Chauvin, and, and I think about that. Alex King, his third shift is a cop, and this guy's in prison. For, it's it's what a what a tragedy. Thank you, Liz. Have a great Christmas. Have a great holiday season. Uh, thank God you bless so much. you. Thank you for everything uh, you do, Jason. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Uh, hey, guys, if you're still out shopping for Christmas gifts, you know what you should do? Go to shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Use my promo code Jason 25 
for 25% off all orders on the Fearless Shop. All right, thanks for watching. Have a great Christmas. I just